Well, good morning again. What a joy it is to worship with the saints. Uh, thank you, worship team, for leading us. And I want to take a moment just to publicly say thank you to Zach, to Joe, Mark Lundberg, and even though he's n no longer here with us anymore, uh, Tom Hammonds, who throughout the summer were able to relieve some of some burdens on me throughout the summer in helping lead worship uh, while I was able to focus on some other things that we had going on this summer, such as youth camp, VBS, and then these past couple of Sundays where I've had the privilege to uh, bring God's word to you. So thank you men for helping me and thank you worship team each and every week for leading us in worship. We're blessed to have this opportunity to gather and assemble this Lord's Day to bring our offerings of praise and worship as well as our offerings of service and tithe to honor our creator, sustainer, our shepherd and our savior, our protector and our provider. May he alone get the glory for what, we, we, what has happened here this morning and what we will continue to do in our worship through the preaching and the hearing of his holy word. We're going to be revisiting the letter of James this morning, so if you have your copy of God's word, I would invite you to turn there. And um, I will have to apologize for an, an error in the bulletin that I missed. It's my fault, just so you know, uh, it's totally my fault. Uh, I, it's James chapter 2 not James chapter 3, as the bulletin in the order of worship says, because those verses would not match up. I don't even think all those verses are in chapter 3 of uh, James. So didn't want you to think that I was preaching from some new Bible. Um, but it is James chapter 2 that we will be in this morning, verses 14 through 26. Before we read, let us give thanks to our God and ask his blessing upon our time in the Word. Father in heaven, great and mighty are your wondrous deeds. We desire to bring you praise and honor and glory for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. God, we thank you for your ever-present watchfulness and care in our lives, that you guide us, you strengthen us through your holy word. And as we read it together this morning, may it pierce our hearts and stir within us a desire to please you as we obey your commands and a longing to be in your presence. I pray that you would use the message today to bring hope to your people and to grow your church for your glory. May your name be magnified this morning. In the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, I would invite you to stand one more time for the reading of God's holy word. And let us consider these words this morning from James. James 2, verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it, is not, if it, is, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you, not, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in, that same, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his eternal inerrant and holy word. And may the Holy Spirit write its truth on our hearts. You may be seated. Now, there is an idiom that many of you are likely familiar with that is often used in detecting whether or not something is true or false. And that is the expression, does it pass the smell test? Now, there isn't a lot of history behind where that phrase comes from, but it could have likely come from attempting to tell if certain foods had expired. As you may well know, a carton of milk may look like it's good, but does it pass the smell test? In another sense of expiration, the smell test can also let us know if something is dead or alive. In the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, it was the concern of smell that prompted Martha to warn Jesus about opening Lazarus' tomb because, as the King James puts it, by this time he stinketh. In 1989... The movie Weekend at Bernie's came out, and with it, one of the most ludicrous premises for even a slapstick 80s comedy, as the main characters parade a dead man around with sunglasses, everyone else believes him to still be alive, and other zany antics ensue. And we, as the viewers, are supposed to believe that nobody else notices that this man isn't actually alive, and that this dead body hasn't started to smell. And a weird sense of irony, that story doesn't pass the smell test. Now I bring up this ridiculous movie as an illustration because there are many who call themselves Christians claiming they have faith in Christ, but that faith is just dressed up in sunglasses, being shown off to others in hopes that they will think it is alive and well, while in fact it is a dead faith. As we get into the text, I want to give a few reminders that I shared last week of the background of this book and provide context for our passage this morning. As I said last week, this letter is most likely written by James, the brother of Jesus, who although was skeptical at first of his half-sibling, became a leader in the early church and became a preacher of the gospel of the resurrected Jesus. James's letter is full of practical wisdom to believers dealing with a variety of issues such as trials, poverty and riches, favoritism, social justice, taming the tongue, worldliness, boasting, and much more. And much of the book places these issues alongside the matter of faith. As one of James's primary concerns is that his readers would know the difference between a genuine faith in Christ and a counterfeit faith. Last week, as we looked at James 1, verses 19 through 25, we saw what an active faith looks like, one that moves us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we saw that in order to be able to receive the word of God properly, we must be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, while laying aside all filthiness. 
Well, today's message is going to be very similar. These verses are going to show us some key comparisons between a living faith and a dead faith. And these are going to be our outline that we'll follow this morning. If you have your uh, bulletin or you're following along on the church app, you'll see our outline. Again, it's not a very um, complicated or long outline, just some, a few fill-in-the-blanks that you'll have to, to follow along with us. But in our first major point, I want us, I want us to, see that, that, or to help us see that there is no contradiction within God's Word and that there aren't two writers of Scripture who seem to be at odds. And so on our first major point this morning, we're going to be looking at James versus Paul. Now, I, I briefly discussed this last week, this seeming contradiction between Paul's teachings and what was written and what James writes here in this letter. I also mentioned how early on in his ministry, Martin Luther didn't think that the book of James belonged in the canon of Scripture due to its apparent theological shortcomings. But I want to spend a little more time attempting to show that while on the surface there seems to be conflict, what we really have is two singers whose harmonies are blending into one melody. If the first chapter wasn't enough to catch its early readers' attention, it's almost certain that this section would have caused them to sit up in their seats. Because it's almost as if he is being deliberately provocative, maybe even a bit impish as he begins this section by asking, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? And then later in verse 21, James uses the illustration of Abraham. And he asks, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you were to take those two verses and then take one or two from Paul's writings, such as Romans 3, 28, which says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or if we took Galatians 2, 16, which says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. You take those two verses, you take what, what uh, James is saying here, and it does seem that these two are standing in opposition to one another. But it would serve us well to look more closely at what both James and Paul have to say in Scripture and what they mean when they talk about being justified. See, when Paul talks about justification, he is using it in a judicial sense of being declared righteous. When Paul was putting faith up against works of the law, he was referring to how keeping and obeying the law does not change our standing before God. There's nothing that we can do that can earn us favor from God or remove the guilt of sin from us. I hope you understand that this morning. There's nothing that we can do to earn God's favor. When James is talking about justification... He's still using it in a judicial sense, but instead of it referring to a pronouncement of a verdict, he's referring to a proof or a vindication of a prior assertion. One modern theologian, theologian explains it this way. He says, in God's court, believers are justified the moment they believe. When they trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, their sin is laid on Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to them. 
yet works also justify in this secondary sense, that they vindicate God's declaration that we are right with him. They prove that we are alive in Christ. So we see that these two men use justification in different ways. Paul using it as that declaration of righteousness, one that was not of us, one that we did not earn. It was declared by God. And then James is using it in a sense of vindication, how we are the act, our works. When people see our works, they go, ah, he is justified in his faith. His works prove that he has faith. Well, the context of the different books of the Bible also help us in our understanding because we know that many of Paul's letters were written to audiences who were either being threatened by false teachers who were adding requirements to the gospel or or he was writing to those who needed encouragement and assurance that salvation was available to them despite their sinful nature. That was Paul's audience. Well, James is writing his letter to those who have an incorrect view of faith or those who are abusing what Paul had said regarding not being under the law. If you were with us last week, you heard me talk about that there are some who profess an antinomian view of salvation, suggesting that the law of God and his commands have no bearing on us today. And there would have been those who held that same viewpoint in James's day. So I think it would be helpful if we looked at a few other verses that showed us that James and Paul are again singing from the same songbook. For those who might suggest that Paul preaches that faith and grace are the only things that matter for the believer, well, listen to his words in Romans 2, verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. That sounds an awful lot like James 1, that we looked at last week when he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul uses the analogy of a builder's foundation And that foundation is faith in Christ. But then we read in verses 12 through 13, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. He is pointing to the the importance of our works, our actions of being a product of our faith. And even when Paul was writing to the Ephesians and he was saying to them, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. But if we, have, but if we keep reading and get to verse 10, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul and James are preaching the same gospel. It's a gospel whose root is faith alone and Christ alone. So I want it to be clear to everybody, especially to those this morning, who might think, I'm not good enough for God to save me. Or to those this morning who might be in despair because you look at your sin-stained life and you think, there's no way I can make myself clean for God. Well, let me offer you this peace and tell you that you don't have to make yourself clean. God will do that. He will give you a new heart. He will clothe you in his righteousness. You only need faith. And guess what? He will give you that too. That is the gospel of justification by faith alone. And both Paul and James believed that. 
but they also believe that a faith that is alone or a faith that saves us is never alone if faith is the root of our salvation our works are the fruit of our salvation and this is the message that james is giving us in his letter he and paul didn't disagree they're just simply telling different parts of the same story so as we continue through james and we'll, or as we continue through, we'll see that though James and Paul were not, act, they were not actually against each other, we're going to see some ideas that are in conflict. And James is going to show us which is the correct way. So the rest of our points this morning, are gonna, we're going to be going through this passage, and we will see some conflicting ideas. And for these remaining points, we're going to jump around within these section of verses. Our next two points are going to show us how our faith has external implications meaning how it affects those around us. And then our final two points are going to show how our faith has internal implications, meaning how does it affect our relationship with God. So as we begin with verse 14, it's important that we pay attention to a couple of key words here that will help us understand what it is that, or what is driving James to write this letter. This is one of the verses that people use to make their case that James preaches a different gospel, that he says we're not saved by or through our faith but let's look more closely at what james is saying look at verse 14 and he asked the question what good is it my brother if someone says he has faith so the conflict here is saying versus showing what is being suggested is that there there are those who might say they have faith but have never actually put into practice what they claim to believe People can go around and claim whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. But do their actions, how, how they act, will, a will be a testimony to whether or not they truly believe what they say. How many of you are familiar with the phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Okay. Now, how many of you are also, now you know what that means. If you've heard that, you know that it, it's an expression that's used to mean that the value or quality or truth of something is based upon direct experience. We say that to prove in the pudding. You know, we, we, we actually tasted the pudding, but that's why we need to make sure we understand there's actually a, a, a longer version of that expression that actually explains it even a little bit better. It's that the proof of the pudding is in the eating or the tasting. Okay, so we, the, 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 the proof, so you could look at it and say, well, that looks like pudding, but I won't know until I taste it. Well, there, is a, there was a television show that came out a few years ago called Is It Cake? Some of you may have seen that. It was on, I think it was on Netflix. And the premise of that show is that these bakers and these cake designers would make a cake that would resemble non-food items, items that you're not expected to eat, like a shoe or a hat. I don't know, they did all kinds of things. And so they would show them the item, and then the cake, the designers would go back, and they would bake a cake, and they would trim it and decorate it and try to get it to look as closely to that actual item. And then there would be judges that would try to determine which one of these items is cake and which one of them is the actual item. And once the person would make their decision, they would then cut into that item. And if it was cake, it would, the knife would just cut right into it and show that it was cake. And if not, it wouldn't cut. Now, for me, I'm not as concerned with whether or not the cake looks like a shoe. I'm more, I'm more concerned with, does it taste like cake? To me, that's, that'd be, that would be the proof of the cake, is does it taste like a cake? Because, I mean, people can make 
anything that looks like a cake, and they can say it's got the ingredients, but does it taste like cake? That's what, that's what matters to me. And other cooking shows, while presentation might play a factor, what really comes down to is how good it tastes. Now, growing up in Southern Baptist churches, I've been to more than my fair share of church potlucks. And I've been burned more than once by a dish that looks really good, but when you actually take a bite, you realize the level of deception. (laughs) This is the type of faith that James is talking about. Those who talk a good game, but there are no actions to back what they say. We are saved by faith, but not that faith. You look at what James wrote, what good is it if someone says they have, if someone says he has faith but does not have words? Can that faith save him? Now, while some translations don't include this word, we can see James's point when we read, this is the way the ESV translated, can that, it's implied when he's saying, can that faith save him? That faith is one that is devoid of any discernible fruit. And there are a couple of illustrations that James gives us, one from a negative standpoint, and one from a positive standpoint. See, in the next verses that follow, we see an example of someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, yet doesn't show love and compassion for others. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, a true follower of Christ would listen to his words found in Matthew 25 verses 35 through 40 when Jesus says for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison and you came to me then the righteous will answer him saying Lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you and the king will answer them truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me and then James gives us a positive example of faith toward the end of this section in verse 25 using the example of Rahab who helped the Israelite spies who had come to Jericho to check out the land and check out the city and see if they could conquer the city. And we see that, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. If we read the whole story in Joshua 2, we will learn that Rahab's faith was the motivation for her actions. In Joshua 2, verses 9 through 11, she tells the Israelite spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It was her faith that led her to act and show kindness and compassion to these men. And this leads us to our next point this morning, and that is a useless faith versus a useful faith. 
See, in the first example, James uses a scenario that although it's fictional, it would have been likely in his day and just as likely in our day where someone has a need. Maybe it's food or clothing. And this does appear to be a matter of concern for James because he brought it up in chapter 1, reminding his readers that it is the Christian's responsibility to take care of those who are not able to take care of themselves, namely widows and orphans. But it's, these are not the only people that we should look to take care or look to care for. Christians, we are to care for one another. And we're not only to care for other believers, but those who do not yet know Christ, that the acting out of our faith might allow us the opportunity to share the gospel. I believe James uses this as an illustration because it is such a simple way for a Christian to demonstrate his or her faith by just showing compassion to a fellow human being. How easy would it be to meet this need? Now, as a church, we recognize the, this, this kind of need when a family is going through a difficult time, such as a medical emergency or death in the family, and one of the burdens that can be lifted is taking care of meals for the family. It's why our deaconesses organize meal trains. It's why we have a deacon's fund so that those with a financial need may come and ask for help. And sometimes that help is given without the person even asking because someone else saw that there was a need and brought it to the attention of the church. Now the emphasis on this passage is not the manner in which the help is given, whether it's giving somebody money so they can buy food or preparing a meal for them, whether it's buying clothes for someone or giving them something that you already have. There can, now there, there can certainly be a discussion on how to be wise and discerning and how we are to be good stewards. But it should be stated that Christians should be known as the most generous and helpful of people. And as I said, this is one of the simplest ways that we can show that we belong to Christ. It's an act of humility, of putting others' needs ahead of our own. In the class that I've been teaching in Discipleship Hour, we've been going through the book, Building a Godly Home. And the background of that book is, is Ephesians 5. Our primary focus is on the section that deals with husbands and wives, parents and children. And that section, if you look in Ephesians 5, that starts in, in verse 22, and it actually carries on into chapter 6. But at the beginning of our study, we went back and looked at, we looked at one verse in the previous section, verse 21 that ends that section but if we understand what is happening in ephesians 5 paul is telling uh he's encouraging believers to be imitators of god to walk in love and in holiness and then paul ends that section he said by saying look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise and then in verse 21 submitting to one another out of reverence for christ to submit to one another is to look out for one another's needs. It's putting others' interests ahead of yours. And it's doing so to the benefit and the good of others. This is why I said these two points focus on the external implications of our faith. See, in verse 14, James asks, What good is it for someone to have faith but not works? And then in verse 16, he's pointing to the uselessness of the pious response to a person's physical need. He says that if a brother or sister is hungry or needs clothes, and you say to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
In other words, how does this well-wishing improve their situation? It's suggested that this phrase that James is imagining this person saying, it could, it could mean one or two things. It could mean, you need food? Go and find it and take care of yourself. Or that it could just be simply a platitude, of a, a prayer that they would find what you're needing. Well, I hope you would be well and filled. In other words, God speeds you on your way as you try to find your own food or clothing. Either way, it's a pretty insensitive response. And it's one that I'm sure we, none of us have ever thought. We've never seen someone asking for a handout and made a snap judgment about every life decision that that person has made and thought, why don't they just get cleaned up and get a job? And we would never offer up a pious response when someone shares that they are struggling to meet a certain need for their family and something such as, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. Now, I'm not downplaying the part of prayer or the power of prayer. But too often in situations like this, telling someone that you'll pray for them is used as a Christian cop-out to avoid actually having to do anything. We should pray, but we should include ourselves as the means of providing that help. When we pray that someone would meet a need, then say, Lord, if you can use me, use me. When the Israelite spies came to Rahab in need of a place to hide, she didn't send them on their way and wish them well with a prayer that they would find the right place. She risked her life to meet their need. Her faith had a tremendous impact on their well-being. The kind of faith that a person claims to have that has no benefit to those around them is useless. It's so useless, in fact, that James refers to it as dead, both in verse 17 and verse 26. He's not referring to a half faith or a limited faith. It is a dead faith. Those fans of The Princess Bride will remember a scene in that movie where the hero Wesley, believed to be dead, is brought to Miracle Max. Max examines him and tells his friends that he isn't dead, but only mostly dead. Which means he is slightly alive. And they are able to revive him. Well, James is not like Miracle Max proclaiming their sort of faith to be only mostly dead. He is saying that a faith like that is completely dead. And it's at this point that I would like to address that those who would read James's statement here and think, who is James to decide if someone has genuine faith? Who are we to decide if someone has genuine faith? We can't look into someone's heart and determine whether or not someone has truly placed their faith and trust in God. And to that I would say you're right. We cannot know someone's heart and it is not our responsibility to declare someone to be a believer or an unbeliever. But that doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to examine the fruit of someone's life and assess whether or not they live what they claim to believe. In John 15, verse 8, Jesus says to his disciples, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Prove it to who? Not to God. God doesn't need our proof. He knows if we are truly his. Jesus is telling his disciples to prove it to the world. Be a living testimony of God's love and grace and mercy so that he might be glorified. To prove that we belong to God is to cause others to make a judgment about our faith. 
which we should also be doing for others. But here's where we need to be careful. If we judge the fruit or lack of fruit in someone's life, it is not to condemn them as an unbeliever. That is not something we are ever told to do. We are never told to condemn somebody or to pronounce judgment that that person does not have a faith in Christ. If we are given reason to think that someone may not be a believer, then our response is to love that person enough to share the true gospel with them. If a person's actions indicate that, they may, that maybe they haven't truly understood what it means to be a follower of Christ, then show that person what it looks like. Share the truth with them in love, that they may repent and turn to Jesus. When we desire God to be glorified above everything else and for his kingdom to grow, we will take every opportunity to share the gospel and to point people to Jesus. And this is one of the ways that we prove our faith to be useful and not useless. Well, then James continues this diatribe, this imagined discourse, by anticipating that a person might object to his premise, suggesting that some people have faith, some people have works, similar to the way that some people have certain spiritual gifts, and some have others. So someone might say, good works are for those who have the gift of works. My gift is knowledge or faith. Well, what James is showing us in these next verses is the difference between knowledge versus application. And this is where we're going to see the internal implications of our faith, where we see how our faith has effect on our relationship with God. Now, we covered this idea of knowledge versus application last week when we were in James 1, and we were told that we should not be hearers of the word, but doers as well. We learned that it is not enough to gain knowledge of God, but to put that knowledge into practice. Now, some of you may have heard the expression that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is knowing enough not to put it in a fruit salad. Well, we could say then that wisdom is knowledge applied. Much like the illustration that I gave last week of reading instructions on how to assemble something, but then walking away and not actually doing the work to assemble it, what James is saying here is that it's not enough just to know something. What matters is how that knowledge affects what you do. So what James does is he uses the quote-unquote faith of demons to illustrate this point. In verse 19, he says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Yes, the demons know who God is, and they believe more about God than some supposed Christians. They know that he is the only true God. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. And they know of his power and his might. They know much about God and it terrifies them. Their belief about God brings them no comfort. It does not save them. When our knowledge of a God, when our knowledge of God is applied to our lives, we are given one of the greatest blessings that we could receive in this life. Peace. And what is so tragic about those who either outright reject God or those who claim to believe and yet their faith is dead is that the thought of standing before the eternal God creates terror. But the Apostle John, he reminds us in his first letter when he says that perfect love, meaning love for Christ, perfect love drives out fear. Daniel Doriani says in his commentary that true faith Faith that knows and trusts God as he presents himself in the gospel casts out servile fear. 
It grants peace with God, a desire for his word, and the capacity to put away sin, a capacity that shows itself in stronger relationships and better behavior at work and at play. The evidence of our faith, the fruit that is produced in our lives, can assuage the fear of eternal judgment and can produce a hope and an assurance of eternity with God. While the demons know who God is, their knowledge does not produce faith in God, nor does it produce obedience to God. Well, in contrast to that, James gives us, or gives his readers, the example of Abraham. In verse 21, he asks, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now remember, James is not using the word justified in the same sense that Paul does. He's not suggesting that our works produce salvation, but our salvation is vindicated or justified by our works. Now if we go to Genesis 15 and verse 6, we read about Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and, it was, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is the embodiment of Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So we know that Abraham's salvation was not based on anything other than God's pleasure. And what James is showing is how Abraham's faith was proven through his obedience to God. In Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham that through his offspring a great nation would be established and Isaac was the seed of promise. Then in chapter 22 of Genesis, Abraham is put to the test, God telling him to take his son and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, some of us would argue that this makes God a cruel master asking one of his followers to sacrifice their own child. But to view this historical account in that light is to misunderstand our position, our place, in comparison to God's. The point of the story is not that God may expect us to sacrifice our own child, but that we ought to trust God in everything that he might ask us to do, knowing that his will is perfect and holy. We aren't, we aren't privy to what was going through Abraham's mind as he climbed Mount Moriah, but through the lens of Scripture, we know that Abraham held fast to his faith. And in a picture of what Christ would do for his people, a substitute was provided. But Abraham didn't know God would respond that way, but his faith was secure. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were prepared to die for their faith, not knowing that God was going to save them from the fiery furnace, their faith was held fast. For Abraham, his faith is seen as so unyielding that it is likely that he thought that even if he were to go through with what God commanded him to do, that God would bring Isaac back to life. That is how strong Abraham's faith was. He was prepared to do what God said, knowing that God would still keep his promise. And through God's provision, his faith would have been even more strengthened. And the more we put our faith on display, the more confidence and assurance that we have in God, the object of our faith. May we have the faith of Abraham, putting into practice the knowledge of God that we have been given. Now last week I mentioned that the book of James reads more, as a, reads as more practical than it does theological. But for our final point this morning, I do want to focus briefly on a theological argument that is brought about by this passage, one that we should understand. And I wanted, that is, I want us to understand the difference between infusion versus imputation. Specifically when it comes to the righteousness which we possess. 
In verses 22 through 24, James writes, You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Do you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Now, I've already taken the time to explain that when James is talking about being justified by works, he is not using it in the same manner as Paul, but I will offer up one more piece to consider. Paul spent a considerable amount of time ministering to pagans, those who had no background in in understanding the things of God. It can be assumed that he felt the need to clarify any confusion about the relationship between faith and the law. He also dealt with groups such as the Judaizers who were trying to persuade Gentile believers that they must follow the Jewish law in order to be truly saved. Well, James had a different target audience. He was speaking to those who did have a background in biblical religion. But the problem was many were thinking that that because they simply grew up in a household that professed faith, that meant they had faith. I grew up in the South, as many of you know, and it is a beacon for cultural Christianity. Many people went to church every Sunday more because that's what mama expected and that's what Jesus expected. And they thought that that saved them. And there's no doubt that this mindset exists in churches all across the world. Well, this is the attitude that James is writing about. And he wants his readers, particularly his Jewish readers of the day, but us as well, to understand that Abraham was not saved because of any inherent righteousness in himself. All the righteousness that he had was given to him. It was counted to him, as our text reads, or as the NASB says, it was credited to him. There was nothing that Abraham could do to earn the righteousness that was necessary to secure God's favor. It had to be given to him. And the same is true of us. Any faith that we possess, we have because God and his sovereign grace extended it to us. Allow me to read from a couple of historic evangelical confessions of faith. First, from the Westminster Confession of Faith, which, from which we have the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And question 33 of that catechism asks, what is justification? And the answer given, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And then from, six, from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, We read, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness, they receiving and resting on him his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Now those that hold to this, this idea of infusion of righteousness which is historically a prominent viewpoint of the Roman Catholic Church, they believe that God not only counts us as righteous, but he infuses us with his his righteousness in order that we are then able to obey God's commands. Now you may wonder, what's the difference? What is the distinction? Why make such a distinction between these two terms? 
Well, while the terminology may seem the same, the implications are chasms apart. It was one of the driving forces behind the Protestant Reformation because the teaching of righteousness by infusion reflects a works-based salvation. Now, it might help us if we understand it from a reverse viewpoint to look at the other side of the coin. If we, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us in the same manner in which our sin was imputed to him. When Christ was on the cross, he took on our sins to bear its punishment. But we would not suggest that our sin made Christ sinful. Christ on the cross did not have our sins infused into him, in which case he would have become sinful and corrupt in nature. And that's heresy. Rather, our sins were credited to his account, and he was taking our place in punishment. Likewise, we in turn do not have the righteousness of God infused within us, but credited to our account. It is imputed to us. And so the reason that I take the time to try and explain the difference between these terms is because many, especially Roman Catholics, will use James 2 verse 24 as a proof text for a works-based salvation. They won't deny justification by faith. They just deny the word alone. They claim it's faith plus. To suggest that we do anything, that we have any ability in ourselves to procure our salvation is to greatly misunderstand the gospel of grace. It is to render Christ's sacrifice on our behalf as insufficient. So believers, let us rest in the, in the finished work of Christ, knowing that our future glorification is secure and has been purchased and redeemed through no efforts of our own. And if you are here this morning and you are still striving to earn your favor before God, hoping that in the end your good deeds outweigh the bad, let me offer you hope. Cease your striving. Simply cry out to God, save me for I am a sinner. And allow God to grant you peace as he gives you a new heart and grants to you Christ's righteousness. Now I finished up this morning with this theological exposition so that we would not misunderstand what James has been teaching us in these passages that we looked at both this morning and last week. Let us remember that we are not saved by our works, but by the unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ. Yet our works are an outward expression of our inward transformation, revealing the fruit of our lives, or the fruit of our faith. So as we trust in God and allow His Spirit to work in us, our actions will naturally align with His will. May the fruit of our salvation bring glory to God. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, your light must shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And may the fruit of our salvation bring us assurance. As Peter writes, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and his choice of you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And may the fruit of our salvation be a testimony to others as you point them to Christ, as Abraham did. As we read in our passage this morning, you see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. As we seek to grow our living faith, 
may our love for God and for one another abound so that the world may see the light of Christ shining through us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ empower us to live out this faith with boldness and humility. And may our lives be a testament to the transforming power of the gospel. In all things, may God be glorified and may the world be drawn closer to him through our faith in action. Let us pray. Father, it's to you that we give all the glory for the gift of your word. May we apply its truth to our lives as we seek to live out our faith before others, that they might see you and give you praise. Help us, Lord, to be living testimonies of your grace and mercy. Guide us, Lord, in our steps as we leave from this place and keep us near to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.